Diane, it's Sunday, 11.58 in the morning. I'm sending you the latest episode of season two of Horror Vanguard's Twin Peaks Retrospective. I think you're going to get a kick out of this one. Yes, well, hello, everyone. Hello, dear listeners. Um, I hope you enjoyed that bit of... Oh, academic witticism uh, that we opened today's episode with. <laughs> that's what uh, we're known we, for. We are, yeah, that's what we're known for. We're a very intellectual show here. Um, but no, this is the Twin Peaks Retrospective. We're back with episode 11, a.k.a. episode 4, a.k.a. episode 12. This only gets more confusing as those numbers go up. Laura's Secret Diary. Dun, dun, and dun. I, think, I think we're both pretty excited for this one because this is really where... At least in my opinion, this is this is where season two starts to become season two. Yes. And less the rehash of season one. Yes, absolutely. This is where things really kind of kick off. Um this is this is uh a really, really interesting episode, I think. Um, absolutely. Where would you like to begin? Log lady? As as always. Everything starts with the log lady. So in this in this like log lady introduction, um, which which I really like, I know I've mentioned this a few times before, um, but like those log lady introductions are absolutely fantastic. Like you, you really like it's worth getting the Blu-ray just for those. Oh yeah, or I'm sure they're on they're on you know the internet somewhere. Um, but like so this log lady introduction, she's talking all about anger, and I think that this is really interesting from like a left discursive standpoint especially when we're dealing with horror media and gothic media uh, because anger is like the the hidden emotion of of the gothic we over focalize the kind of uh the anhedonias the depressive affects the 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 solemn sorrows but like the you know like even going back to the like horace walpole's the castle of Otranto, the stuff like jane Eyre, like anger is such a predominant emotion in the gothic landscape mm-hmm and I think we can kind of like, you know, do do a little post post Fisherian magic and extend that forward into kind of like the look at what then how does that relate to Gothic Marxism? And that's a massively complicated conversation that I'm sure someone could get a book deal for. But the first thing that <laughs> that, that kind of comes to mind for me is like, um, Oh, we're so focused today on like a lot of uh, the the discursive focus on the left presently is very depressive, um, and not I don't say that qualitatively, but I say that quantitatively, right? We're focused on trauma, we're focused on loss, we're focused on suffering, which are all important things to study, critique, and move through. But that does leave out the kind of generative force that is anger. You know, anger isn't always a moralistic negative, right? Anger can be a very positive, very healthy emotion. What do you think about the, about Margaret's uh, point and the connection that it makes between anger, happiness, and health? See, this I really, really, really enjoy. I do think that anger can help sometimes improve the happiness and health of a person and, and of the position in your life, right? Like, you know, like, like get, get mad sometimes is the answer. And this seems really counterproductive and this seems very toxic because we've structured a lot of our contemporary understandings of psychic well-being around uh, a kind of placid enjoyment mm. is, is how we, we orient our psychic health towards placid enjoyment. You are psychically healthy if you are 
just doing okay enough to go to work and enjoy whatever products are being sent your way. That's kind of the capitalistic psychic status quo. Yeah. And we need the the boat needs to be rocked to get the mind out of that. And the mind can be rocked via several emotions, but the more I guess generative ones, you know, anger and joy, like they 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 can help they can help ease us out of this current miring. What are what are some of your takes on this? Well, I think that's really interesting, but I also think I think there's a there's a degree to which it's a kind of uh understandable response. This idea that the, the, she says something, the log lady says something which I think is really interesting. But she says, um, sometimes she says that um, you know anger anger can kind of make you ill. It can kind of make you ill. And she says sometimes when we're ill, we're not on our best behavior. Um, and I'm like, by what measure of best are we working with here? Right, best behavior for whom and to what ends? Because I think if if we take the injunction to always be happy is a sort of one where you have to remain productive, right? The the I think the whole kind of productive point within, you know, a lot of that post-Fisher mm-hmm. theory was that dealing with the psychological and psychic trauma of um survival under capitalism made you unproductive in the capitalist sense of the word, but was a chance for there to be a new kind of production. So I think it's interesting that she brings up this this question of behavior of like what is it to, what does it mean to be on your best behavior and what happens if we are not on our best behavior and can that be a positive rather than a kind of disciplinary thing Absolutely absolutely and and I think I I would make your kind of like uh, an interesting connection between anger and love mm. right like we're we're in a very difficult political moment as people who like to live on the surface of the earth. Um, I, I think that particular class of people is in for quite a doozy. You know? Yeah. But like, you know, like we, we should be mad about this, that, that, that anger has, has a potential for us. Right. And not, not a, just a crass kind of reduction of like, Oh, get get angry and go in the streets or whatever. Not not the kind of oversimplified, oversimplified, you know, liberal discourses of like, what would be the political organizing equivalent of a wall puncher, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But nevertheless, like a a deeper anger, right? A, a kind of generational spiritual anger that has been building this kind of like anger of the dead. Well, I think this this raises a kind of interesting question because how do you how do you see that? Um, what we what we will call a HV these HVs HV Pracy style introductions to the episode. How do you how do you see that connecting to the actual story content of an episode, which is a little bit silly in places? <laughs> oh, so I, I I think there's nothing that's made me happier on this show so far than than the doing Kafka and his precursors, but it's for my Pracys to the Log Lady. Yeah, absolutely. I um, think that I'll take that. <laughs> Um, no, I think I think it really works though, right? Because we've we're starting to see characters in Twin Peaks kind of uh, uh, psychically grow from the state the state of uh, kind of like this placid consumptory enjoy <clears throat> sorry the state of like placid enjoyment focused on like material consumption, mm-hmm. and then we've got the death of Laura Palmer, which brings on this great trauma, and then in the wound of this trauma, now that people are starting to bring themselves back together, we've got 
We've got Maddie recognizing that she hates just being a clone of Laura Palmer. We've got Donna wishing Laura Palmer would have been buried deeper, mm-hmm. right? So so that her ghost could be fully excised from the community. You know, we've got all of these people starting to realize like, hey, like th- things things are mad or things are bad here and they're becoming mad by that. Yeah. Right? That is but angering there's, there's, them. There's also quite a lot of, there's sort of a lot of excited joy in this one, particularly revolving around the people of the Double R Diner with their, mm-hmm. um, you know, absolute wild excitement of M.T. Wentz coming to town. Let's let, let's talk about M.T. Wentz. I, I know you have M.T. Wentz takes. Um, well, I just I just sort of love this plot beat because everybody goes, oh, Twin Peaks is a is a dark, noir, psychosexual thriller. Um, and you go, yeah, it it is also they're doing like classic comedy bits of like rushing people out the back door before the big important guest comes in. I, mm-hmm. What do you think about? I think season two does get a lot more kind of. And I don't mean this in a negative way. I think it does get a lot more goofy. Um, what are you? What are your thoughts of of Twin Peaks as a kind of comedy? I mean, I, I think that works. I think that works. I think the you know we keep saying that Twin Peaks is a sitcom, and Twin Peaks keeps proving us right. Mm-hmm. And I think these comedy bits are are perfect. And again, this is something that we we've, we've talked about in previous episodes too, where it's just like. On 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 the same day that the most horrifying thing in recent memory happens to a given individual, they will also bear witness to to a complete farce of society. Uh, you know, yes. like and David Lynch is just a master of being able to kind of like wield seemingly contradictory swords at the same time. You know, and like and even even there, like there's there's this interconnectedness that I really love in Twin Peaks, right? Because we've got everyone at the diner. On on the surface level, they're they're like, oh, a, a secret food critic is coming in. Everybody panic and do a bunch of hijinks. And then like, but like that's that's kind of just a surface cover for like all of these like ex-cons and murderers like using the diner as like a way to like launder their reputations in the community. Yes. <laughs> and then like like the diner, the diner also has this front of like Americana, right? Like, oh, it's the diner. It's one of America's most wholesome cultural products. You know, it's a good meal, conversations with strangers, it's classic Americana. But like, no, no, it's like two married couples who are who have like an on-again, off-again tryst. We have like multiple, I think multiple murderers now organizing through the diner. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or at least very various kinds of criminals. And then like, not, not to mention that like while all of that's happening, we've got like three to five separate psychics <laughs> all attempting to solve a ghost alien UFO murder mystery. Mm-hmm. And it's all just happening all, all just happening while this while this woman is trying to serve coffee and and deal with the fact that she loves another married man. And, <laughs> it's it's perfect. And at the same time, all of this exists in conjunction with the episode of you know, Leland going on trial you know, there's the, that great line of, you know, have you ever known absolute loss where every cell in the body screams? And it's like, these these things happen in the same episode. I think mm-hmm. I think this is the thing that, like, uh, people don't necessarily appreciate about the show is that it, it not only hybridizes its form, but it does so with its content as well. Ooh, ooh. I really like that take. 
I re- I really like the the not to not to foreshadow what we t- what, part of what we'll be talking about in the next episode, but this kind of like oh oh I I don't know uh, cosmosis it, you know increasing the complexification of the text of Twin Peaks I, something about that I just really like. Mm. <laughs> well, what do you what do you think about Leland's storyline in the opening sections of this episode? I I really li- I really like the kind of growth and decay of Leland Palmer. He, he's he's becoming more of an interesting character for me now now that I rewatch Twin Peaks like from the perspective of a real film critic, which is a weird thing to say. <laughs> um but like the thing that the thing that I'm liking about Leland's character kind of increasingly is he's kind of uh he he's a microcosm of the greater gothic narrative going on in Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. right? Like he is he is simultaneously his he's his own haunted house he is his own gothic heroine trapped in the labyrinth that is himself right like he he is he is this singular entity that holds multitudes and this kind of sprawling complexity and and it's like it's like you jammed all of the classic facets of a gothic character into a single being yeah what are what are some of your leland takes well i he's sort of a husk isn't he he's he's become a kind of husk he's been hollowed out by this uh, experience that he's been through, um, and I think it's, I think it's very interesting the way that he's treated by the various figures and representatives of the legal system in town. We mm. we finally see the judge for the first time, for example. Um, what what do you think about the judge? Yeah, this the stuff I find really interesting. The the kind of court case that that, that goes on in the background. And I think the thing for the, I mean, like the thing for me that is most interesting that kind of speaks to what you were saying about the kind of hybridity of of the form and content of Twin Peaks is like now we have like a courtroom drama, yes. popping up for, <laughs> for a few episodes. And like the thing about American courtroom dramas is that most of the time the prosecution are the good guys. Mm-hmm. The, when I say good guys here, like listeners, I mean good guys from the standpoint of the text of the show. They want you. Oh, the prosecution is our protagonist, our hero. You know, we have to we have to lock up those dastardly criminals, and then they're twirling their mustaches or whatever with like you know, it's just propaganda. Mm-hmm. But in this one, in this one, like the 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 prosecution is like the most the king king of the oafs <laughs> he's a fantastic <laughs> character it's a good, you kind of feel bad for it. him oh, what a great way of putting but it. it but but it is like like it's just it's just like it's it's barely even like it's all it's almost it almost feels like a borderline like high camp like drag without the costuming like parody of an american courtroom scene I mean, it's in a, it's set in a dive bar, like, yeah, right. <laughs> like, like that's, it's so parodic of, of the kind of hype and like they're treating this, this, this judge with, with such high prestige and, and he's just this, like, he's just another one of these goofy weirdos that rolls into town. Yeah. He, he drove into town with his RV, you know, it's like, there's something, there's something, again, something really interesting happening with the show's genre here because, um, it's. It's it's essentially kind of like the setup for like a western, right? You know, mm-hmm. Twin Peaks is is very rural. It's right on the it's on the frontier. It's literally on the border, right? And so, it's it's the premise of like a dozen Clint Eastwood movies that there's been a crime and the judge rolls into town to dispense some justice, and and that's what they build it up to. And what you get is you get the slightly 
the slightly uh, goofy boomer who is rolling around in his RV with his, uh, his is it his wife? I think so. I think so. I can't quite recall. Um, and it's like, again, even even the, the kind of great frontier narrative gets this kind of like arch deconstruction happening to it. I love that. I love that. I, I really, I'm really enjoying your kind of focus on like for, for the form and substance of Twin Peaks. I think that's been some of the most fun stuff we've been doing in these like last however many Twin Peaks retrospective episodes now. But there's as a sidebar, there's there's so much more in this episode as well. There's because there is there are two other really big stories that we have to talk about. Yes. Uh, So we have to talk about what happens to Audrey, and we also have to talk about what happens to to poor put upon Deputy Andy. Um, and and poor Deputy Andy. Where would you like to start with those two? Oh dear. Well, let's let, let's pick apart Deputy Andy because because this episode is is kind of one of the many peaks of Deputy Andy's masculinity in crisis hijinks. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, as, and as you have said over the last several episodes, uh, he's he's kind of now the poster boy for the anxiety of the cuckold. Uh, so do you want to do you want to kind of just catch people up if they maybe haven't <laughs> seen the show for a while? What are we talking about here? That's true. That's true. It's been it's been it's been months since Twin Peaks season one uh, retrospective came out. So Andy uh, keeps having these instances where his his masculinity is in in some state of crisis. Right. Like there was his whole character arc over season one is his inability to properly wield his gun. Uh, metaphors abound. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And and now we're we're into season two. Uh, where we're at the end of season one. He becomes the 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 classic masculine marksman he is now able to kill kill on behalf on of the state yeah use, using his firearm right so he's he's rounded that particular circle and now now we're in the new season and what's his new crisis uh well to kind of reverse the analogies here he's shooting blanks mm-hmm. so do you, do you want to do you want to kind of flesh flesh this out you know who's who are, <laughs> who are the players involved where are we where are we at we set our stage in the sheriff's office at Twin Peaks. <laughs> Andy, the the deputy, uh, cannot has been told by doctors he cannot conceive a child uh, uh, because uh, and he uses like it's just a bunch of like hokey euphemisms that he keeps using. You know, like to just a bunch of like like weird like oh there's no doc doc says there's no trout in the stream. Get it? Like <laughs> just a just a bunch of goofy uncomfortable stuff. And it's almost like there's almost a tr- there's so, so much like a- Andy is such a such a great like court gesture figure because like there's so much like pathos to to his comedy, mm-hmm. you know like you you really feel for his bumblings. But then you got Lucy who's not pregnant. Uh huh. Bum bum bum. Drama. So his 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 girlfriend's pregnant, but he can't he can he be the father? Question mark. What's going on? Uh, so who's the other guy? The other guy is is men's men's department store, the new Riz King, Dick Tremaine. <laughs> yeah, take that, baby Gronk. <laughs> yeah, t- t- take that, whatever. What, I don't, I don't, baby. I, I don't know what baby Gronk is. At this point, I'm afraid I, to ask. <laughs> and I'm just I'm just gonna assume that baby Gronk is like a new character in the Mandalorian. <laughs> Which I haven't seen, so I'm assuming Baby Gronk and Baby Yoda are like, maybe Baby Gronk is the Sith, 
you know, he's the bad one. I think he would immeasurably improve. I think he would immeasurably improve the Mandalorian if this was to happen. Disney, call me. I have a great idea. I know your numbers are going down. Uh, yes, we we have a sort of like we have a sort of like a, the continuing deconstruction of of the masculine uh, figure of the law gets reintroduced here. Um, we have Dick Tremaine, uh, resident fancy boy and and department store uh, Riz expert Dick Tremaine. Um, and we have Lucy and of course we have sweet bumbling Andy who is uh, now racked with the confusion and anxiety of the cuckold. Um, desperately trying to figure out <laughs> what I sort of love is that He's very he's very straightforward about it. He just thinks, oh, the doctor has made a mistake. He doesn't think there could be possibly any other answer to this question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and wh- what do you what do you think about the the interactions between these three various players? I mean, I, I what I really love to to bring, to bring the fourth into our mix here. I love the doctor. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I love because his, his interactions with like. Whenever he has to interact with like Coop or like anything related with Laura Palmer, he is so like he he reminds me of McCoy from Star Trek, right? He's 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 the overly human doctor, yeah, right. You know, he's 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 brought to emotions so easily, and he's so empathetic. And then whenever Andy needs something, he's like, "Oh, just 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 fucking give me another sample, whatever, dude. I gotta leave. I'll be in my car." <laughs> <laughs> Poor Andy. Poor Andy, yeah. Poor Andy, poor Lucy. I, I don't really feel for Dick Tremaine at the current juncture. Uh, no, the the and let's 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 be clear, Twin Peaks is very pro abortion rights. Um mm-hmm. poor Lucy, she ends up um pregnant with this with this absolutely awful man's um thanks to this absolutely awful man who doesn't want to do, have anything to do with her really. Um and uh and Andy who sweetly and naively thinks there's been some sort of um you know miracle as as there are, suddenly there are frogs in the stream again um <laughs> so so this is twin peaks continuing its kind of deconstruction of you know the masculine law archetype and then mm-hmm. then actually there's another thing we have to talk about we have to so we have to talk about audrey as well yes um and to, just to catch people up, how would you say that things are going for Audrey at the moment? Great. Yeah. Yep. Great. <laughs> Great. Audrey, Audrey is is doing season three of Twin Peaks ahead of her time. <laughs> yes. Um, so Audrey is 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 kidnapped. Um, she is uh, injected with heroin, um, and. Uh, Blackie and the uh, it's, it's Jean Renault. Uh, yeah, Jean Jacques is dead. Jacques is dead. What, the Ren- the Renault brother is plotting to kill Cooper, and it's, I think it's so useful that you brought up kind of the classic gothic melodrama because this is just this is just what the show is doing now, right? right? Mm-hmm. You've got yep. you've got the imprisoned you've got the imprisoned uh, young woman. Uh, you've got the devil devious kind of um the uncle the family figure you've got the uncaring father like and you've got the the heroic gothic hero who is who is tasked with with uh the rescue mission but he doesn't really manage to do that terribly effectively yet um 
what do you think about this in the context of the comparison to somebody like Andy? So I, I think this is one of the interesting things that I think about when I think about kind of what's going on with Audrey in this moment. And that's like Twin Peaks has a very complicated kind of like discursive existence when it comes to drugs. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, season one is all about cocaine. Season two, we're starting off with a heroin plot line. And what I what I find to be really interesting is a lot of what the text of Twin Peaks is doing here is it's kind of like we're we're dealing with like these kind of like thematic inversions. Mm. You know, like Andy Andy is the the man who can't fire his gun, and then once he gains the ability to fire his gun, all of a sudden his gun doesn't fire. Wink wink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so we have we have his masculinity is perpetually in crisis because it just keeps getting inverted. And and something that I was thinking about about One Eye Jacks and Blackie and because essentially at this point in the story, Laura uh, not Laura Palmer, Audrey Horn has been trafficked, uh, yes, uh, uh, in Canada across an American border and is now being like forcibly manipulated with drugs and like, you know, she she is the rich white teenage girl from the suburbs, mm. like she is kind of the the proverbial force of like myth making. And but like what what's going on? It's not the southern border that she's been traveled across. It's the northern border to Canada. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is an interesting inversion there. Like there's almost a very clear sense of playing with like like because that, that is a very typical like conservative political fear story. Oh, they're like stealing our white women and sending them south across the border. Yeah. But now it's like now now it's going to Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, f- I find that to be a really interesting way to like call out that discourse and to kind of force us into having it and kind of unpacking why we are very comfortable with media often using race and ethnicity and, you know, specifically like the Mexican border zone for these kind of criminal discourses. Well, it makes a similar point that 2666 does, which is to connect um, drugs with the sexual exploitation of women, but mm-hmm. with the financing of neoliberal capitalism, right? So yes, uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's enti- like One Eye Jacks as a center of operations is inherently tied up in the property deals uh, and land valuation, and you know. It's not a coincidence that this show from the 90s then introduces characters, uh, you know, from from the, the dragon of capitalism in the East. Um, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's not a coincidence. So I think that's a, no. that's a really important nexus that the show is kind of try is kind of unpicking. But there is one more storyline that gets introduced here, which is um, Harold. So we have another, you know, uh, we have another kind of. Um, deconstruction, another inversion of something, where you have the uh, the agoraphobe who knows the secrets of everybody outside, right? Mm-hmm. And wh- yep. what do you think of Harold? So I, I think I think Her- Harold's character is incredibly fascinating. I like really really love kind of dwelling on what Twin Peaks is doing with mental health, especially with Mad Liberation contexts. Um, but that that is something I'm saving for the Orchid's Curse because that episode uh, says schizophrenia every other word. Uh, um, yes, it does. So we're gonna we're gonna have to. Re- I'm sorry, all you Deleuze and Guattari fans out there, but we're gonna have to wait until next week for that exciting discourse. <laughs> 
the only thing I will add is that, like, I think the way they use Harold is extremely interesting because what they do is they kind of personalize history, right? Everybody has their own story. And so Harold is less... Harold is essentially the novelist of Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. right? So his job is to be the kind of record keeper, the remembrancer of the town and to incorporate everybody's memory into a kind of larger meta narrative, a kind of a kind of Twin Peaks critical realism, as it were. um there's a lot that happens in this there's a lot that happens in this episode it doesn't drag in the slightest but i feel like we've just glossed the surface on so many of these things but there's a lot of threads that have been laid down which are going to be this is where this is what we're starting to follow now moving forward um are there any final thoughts oh i'm just i'm looking forward to next week's episode i think we're going to have a lot of fun with that one Ooh, okay. Well, dun dun dun. Ha, some big promises being made. Some big promises being made. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um. Well, hopefully we're not shooting discursive blanks next wait, week wait, when wait. we discuss me, 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 me. episode twelve, "The Orchid's Curse." Thanks for joining us, listeners, and we'll see you next week. Diane, it is that we have more questions than we have answers.